Just a warning before we begin today, this story includes discussions of homophobia and anti-LGBTQ plus sentiment. If you want to reach out to someone, you can call The Trevor Project at 1-866-488-7386. On a warm spring morning in May 1980, a young man from Quebec headed out for the day. He was a flight attendant for Air Canada, and he loved seeing the world. He was openly gay and proud of it. This young man with blonde hair and a glowing smile radiated self-assuredness and confidence. But later that day, he received the news that would change his life forever. He had cancer. He was only 27 years old, and ultimately, he would end up dying from his illness just four years later. The young man had been diagnosed with Kaposi sarcoma, which affects the gastrointestinal tract. In the United States, most cases of Kaposi sarcoma are related to one of the deadliest crises of all time, human immunodeficiency virus, or HIV. And tragically, this was the case for the young man. His name was Gaten Dugas. Gaten was called Patient Zero for decades after researchers misread his Patient O nickname, which stood for Out of State. Only in 2016, with the help of medical historians and genetic analysis, would his name finally be cleared. In the landmark book on the AIDS crisis called And the Band Played On, journalist Randy Schultz portrayed Gayton as a charming, handsome, near-sociopath who knowingly infected his partners. Even though Schultz himself was an openly gay man who would later die from AIDS, his depiction of Gayton intertwined AIDS with the idea of a promiscuous, cunning, and irresponsible queer man. Randy Schultz's editor would later express regret for portraying Gayton in this way for the sake of sales. But the damage had been done. As we just mentioned, Gayton would go on to incorrectly be known as Patient Zero, even though he would have been seven years old when the first verified case of HIV was reported. But for over 30 years, Gayton Dugas was incorrectly blamed for bringing HIV to the United States and the stigma and stereotypes of this era still impact us today. The HIV AIDS crisis began 40 years ago and has since irrevocably changed the landscape of queer activism and healthcare. It's estimated that around 36.3 million people worldwide have died from AIDS-related illnesses. Just how is this disease so deadly? HIV and AIDS are often used interchangeably, but there's a clear distinction. Let's first talk about HIV, or the human immunodeficiency virus. HIV is a retrovirus, which essentially means it uses RNA as its genetic material. At the time, retroviruses were poorly understood as a cause of human disease, as a result, the Centers for Disease Control did not have a laboratory dedicated to these kinds of viruses, which would limit initial research done on HIV. And as the name human immunodeficiency virus suggests, it targets the immune system, and specifically, the CD4T lymphocytes. These CD4 cells, also known as helper T cells, are crucial to a healthy immune system, since they coordinate the body's response to sickness by calling other immune cells to action. HIV overrides these white blood cells and uses them to replicate, destroying them in the process. When your immune system is weakened, your whole health suffers. 
So how does AIDS, or Acquired Immunodeficiency Syndrome, factor into all of this? Well, the CDC describes AIDS as the most severe phase of HIV infection. AIDS is also a venereal disease, or a sexually transmitted disease. As we just mentioned, those with HIV have extremely debilitated immune systems, leaving them vulnerable to more and more opportunistic infections, which are severe illnesses that are more common and more serious in those with HIV. An AIDS diagnosis comes after the an AIDS diagnosis comes after the development of certain opportunistic infections, or after someone's CD4 T lymphocyte count drops below 200. The normal range is between 500 to 1500. People who have been diagnosed with AIDS only survive around three years without treatment, which is known as antiretroviral therapy, or ART. But even though there are many effective ART medicines available, there is still no known cure for HIV or AIDS. Since the crisis's beginnings, over 700,000 Americans have died from HIV-related illnesses, and 1.2 million people still live with HIV in the United States. According to the CDC, HIV infection in humans originated in Central Africa with a type of chimpanzee. This chimpanzee version of HIV, which is called simian immunodeficiency virus, or SIV, likely passed on to humans through hunting and exposure to infected blood. HIV itself spreads through bodily fluids like blood and semen, as well as pre-seminal, rectal, and vaginal fluids. People often contract HIV through having sex or sharing drug injection equipment like needles. HIV cannot spread through saliva, through the air, or by hugging or shaking hands. Researchers believe the first case of SIV to HIV transmission in humans occurred in 1920 in the Democratic Republic of Congo. In 1970, HIV spread from the Caribbean to New York City, but it wasn't until the early 1980s that it would spread to San Francisco, finally prompting the public's attention. In 1981, doctors began to notice these clusters of queer men in San Francisco, Los Angeles, and New York City who were diagnosed with Kaposi's sarcoma and pneumocystis pneumonia, or PCP. This is a serious lung infection that's often found in conjunction with a weak immune system. The first official reporting on the AIDS epidemic occurred on June 5, 1981. That day, the CDC published an article about five young, previously healthy gay men in Los Angeles who were all afflicted with PCP and found that they also had other seemingly opportunistic infections, all indicators of immunocompromised systems. By the time the report was published, two of the men already died. The rest would pass away soon after. In late August 1981, the CDC released another follow-up article and found that of their 108 reported cases, 107 were men. And out of those whose sexual orientation was known, 94% were gay or bisexual. 40% of all patients had already died. A couple years later, in 1984, the Department of Health and Human Services announced that a team led by Dr. Robert Gallo identified the cause of AIDS, HTLV3, the retrovirus that we now know as HIV. And also in 1984, a study was published in the American Journal of Medicine, in which Gayton Dugas was labeled as patient O. Gayton was different from other AIDS patients studied. Others reported as many as 1,000 sexual partners, but often forgot most of those names and addresses. Gayton's exceptional memory, as well as his unique name, helped researchers track down his network. 
By the end of the year, Gayton had become one of 3,500 people killed by AIDS. He was only 32 years old, but he left scientists invaluable information about the disease that killed him. As 1984 turned into 1985, researchers continued studying clusters of AIDS patients and working to develop treatments and diagnostic tests. Meanwhile, both these researchers and queer people were outraged at the U.S. government. Because in the early 1980s, even though hundreds and soon thousands of Americans were dying from AIDS, the federal government largely ignored the crisis, and when they did acknowledge it, they were often dismissive and mocking. The first White House correspondent to bring up the HIV-AIDS epidemic was Lester Kinsolving. In 1982, he spoke to the Reagan administration's press secretary, Larry Speaks. Kinsolving asked if Reagan had any reaction to the CDC's classification of AIDS as an epidemic, or to the fact that over a third of AIDS patients had already died. But Kinsolving was not supportive of the queer community, far from it. In this questioning, he referred to AIDS as the gay plague, prompting laughter from other members of the press. He even called gay rights organizations the sodomy lobby. Take a listen. Two years later, in 1984, Kinsolving again asked about the epidemic. During this questioning, Kinsolving asked Speaks if President Reagan had shown any worry about the CDC's data that nearly 300,000 people had been exposed to AIDS. If you recall, by 1984, over 3,000 people had died from AIDS. These press conferences demonstrated Ronald Reagan's apathy towards the AIDS epidemic, despite experts pleading for immediate action. And in accordance with his promise of reducing government spending, Reagan cut the budgets of the CDC, the Food and Drug Administration, and the National Institutes of Health. So under Ronald Reagan, the federal government was reluctant to give additional funding to researching AIDS. Dr. Donald P. Francis, an epidemiologist who studied HIV-AIDS as well as the 1970s Ebola outbreak, 
reflected on the epidemic 30 years later in 2012. Because of the Reagan administration's emphasis on reducing federal spending, Dr. Francis commented that their simple-minded approach had no room for complex concerns like AIDS. Dr. Francis had led the CDC's efforts to develop the United States' first AIDS prevention plan in 1985, but ultimately this was rejected by political officials. According to him, the CDC's AIDS research team was told to look pretty and do as little as they could. Reagan publicly mentioned AIDS in 1985, calling it a top priority. However, Dr. Francis claimed that Reagan's administration was still adamant that public health agencies work to fight the crisis without extra funds. Instead, the administration hoped to shift money from other ventures. That same year, 1985, Rock Hudson became one of the first celebrities to reveal he was HIV positive and to die from the condition. Hudson was one of the leading actors during the golden age of Hollywood, and he was also Reagan's close friend. The revelation that Hudson had AIDS made headlines and finally put the disease on front pages. Rock Hudson eventually died on October 2, 1985, the same day Congress finally allocated funding for AIDS research to the tune of $190 million, which was $70 million more than Reagan's administration had requested. Ronald Reagan's defenders point out that the president and the first lady had gay friends and even outwardly supported gay and lesbian teachers. But the fact remains that Ronald Reagan appeared to believe being gay was a sin. While discussing the AIDS epidemic with his biographer, Reagan posited that maybe the Lord brought down this plague because illicit sex is against the Ten Commandments. In 1985, the nation also saw the highly publicized struggle of a teenager named Ryan White to attend school. You see, Ryan was born in 1971 with the rare genetic disorder called hemophilia A. This prevents the body from effectively making factor VIII, which contributes to blood clotting. Ryan was able to manage his disorder, though, with weekly blood transfusions that contained this factor VIII. Despite his condition, Ryan was a healthy, happy child, until late 1984. When he was 13, Ryan had a lung scan done after he had come down with a severe case of pneumonia. But the scan revealed something no one had expected. It turned out that the blood transfusions that had saved his life would tragically go on to cause his death. The plasma donations that had contained factor VIII were contaminated with HIV. And at 13, Ryan White was diagnosed with AIDS. If you recall, most people have a CD4 T lymphocyte count of around 500 to 1500. An AIDS diagnosis means that your T lymphocyte count is below 200. Ryan's was just 25. Researchers had just identified HIV as the cause of AIDS the year Ryan was diagnosed, so no one really knew how severe a problem this contamination would be. And Ryan? He was given just six months to live. Despite this, he hoped to get back to school soon. But in 1985, Ryan's school district in Kokomo, Indiana, denied his request. After Ryan's diagnosis became widely known, parents and faculty alike campaigned to stop his return to middle school. The stigma around being HIV-AIDS positive was almost as debilitating as the disease itself. People feared Ryan would get their family sick by shaking his hand, using the same public bathrooms, or even just by touching the newspapers Ryan delivered on his paper route. And although Ryan's family eventually won their appeal to let Ryan attend school, the harassment did not stop. They had some supporters in Kokomo, but soon, Ryan's family left for a nearby town, where the high school's principal shook his hand and encouraged the school to educate themselves on HIV-AIDS. 
Brian wanted nothing more to be a regular kid in good health, but he knew that he needed to help others. And so, Ryan became an outspoken advocate and educator, first to his peers and then to the nation. He denounced the idea that HIV was God's punishment against gay men and drug users and championed an HIV screening test for blood donations. In April 1990, a month after attending the Academy Awards, Brian White died of AIDS-related pneumonia in Indianapolis. He was 18 years old and was just one month away from graduating high school. Doctors had given him six months to survive, but he lived for almost six years past his diagnosis. Ronald Reagan, who left office a year earlier in 1989, even wrote a memorial piece in the Washington Post, in which he honored Ryan's ready smile, youthful innocence, and his simple desire to just live his life. Although this tribute was criticized by many, considering his earlier failure to support AIDS patients and research, it also proved Ryan's monumental role in changing how AIDS patients were perceived. But still, some wondered why Ryan White and 100,000 other people had to die from AIDS by 1990 in order for people to care. The lack of support from their government had spurred people affected by the crisis, especially those in the queer community, to fight for change. After seeing friend after friend die from AIDS, playwright Larry Kramer opened the first community-based AIDS service center Gay Men's Health Crisis in January 1982. Kramer would go on to become one of the movement's most prominent faces. He wrote screenplays based on his experiences, including 1985's The Normal Heart and the 1992 follow-up The Destiny of Me, which was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. Kramer was later kicked out of Gay Men's Health Crisis for being too antagonistic, but even though he was often outspoken and provocative, he was passionate and effective. In 1987, Kramer co-founded the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, or ACT UP for short. The group trained activists in civil disobedient tactics, the most memorable of which were their die-ins, in which they would lie down on the ground to visually represent the harrowing reality of AIDS. ACT UP protesters held their die-ins outside government institutions like the FDA, which they believed were taking too long to approve new medications. They also often held signs in the shapes of tombstones above their heads some of which read, Never had a chance. Killed by the system. Silence equals death. Because of their efforts targeting funding, insurance, and pharmaceuticals, it's estimated that 23 million people continue to live today thanks to ACT UP. Meanwhile, the NAMES Project of San Francisco sought to memorialize those lost to AIDS. At the time, many people who died from AIDS-related illnesses did not get a funeral. They were denied the right to die with dignity, because surviving loved ones feared the stigma. Not to mention, many funeral homes and cemeteries downright refused to handle the remains of AIDS victims. So, the NAMES project began honoring those deceased in their own way, by sewing quilt panels. These panels were 3 by 6 feet, the size of the average grave. They were dedicated to someone who lost their life to AIDS. Some are for family members, others for celebrities like Freddie Mercury. Today, the quilt weighs 54 tons is made of nearly 50,000 panels, honoring the lives of over 100,000 people. It's important to note that AIDS activism was, and still is, closely intertwined with racial justice. In fact, Black Americans are disproportionately affected by HIV-AIDS. According to KFF, a bipartisan health policy analyst group, even though Black Americans only make up 12% of the U.S. population, they account for 43% of HIV diagnoses and 44% of HIV deaths. 
the CDC also reports that 50% of all queer Black men will live with HIV during their life. Systemic barriers like poor access to healthcare, poverty, and racism are to blame. And although ACT UP made great strides for the queer community as a whole, many of their members were white, who often neglected to recognize their privilege or to understand the importance of intersectionality. According to the Black AIDS Institute, early exclusion of HIV-AIDS cases in Black men delayed outreach and action. The Institute was founded by Phil Wilson in 1999, who saw how vital it was for an AIDS advocacy group focused on fighting for Black Americans. Ten years earlier, in 1989, Sister Love was founded in Atlanta, Georgia with the goal to educate Black women on HIV-AIDS prevention and general safer sex techniques. The CDC actually studied Sister Love's Healthy Love workshops and found them to improve health outcomes for HIV-positive Black women. And in August 1999, four months after his death, Congress passed the Ryan White Comprehensive AIDS Resources Emergency Act, or simply the CARE Act. Part of the legislation strongly encouraged states to prosecute people who knowingly expose others to HIV. Currently, over 30 states now have specific laws for this failure to disclose an HIV-positive status. The legislation also established the Ryan White HIV-AIDS program, the largest for those living with HIV. This program provides federal funding to states for low-income or poorly insured people so that they can receive treatment of azithromycin or AZT, which is often taken with other antiretroviral medicines. Most people who rely on the Ryan White program are low-income, queer men of color. It is a crucial part of treating HIV-AIDS and expanding healthcare access to those who need it most. The CARE Act was passed, in part, because of growing public pressure, thanks to the work of advocates. But these advocates had to fight countless battles, one against government stagnation and one against systemic racism, ignorance, and hate. The beliefs that contributed to so many deaths in the 1980s are, in part, still threatening healthcare today, because even though the United States is fighting its worst shortage of blood donations in 10 years, men who have sex with men are still not allowed to immediately donate. The current blood shortage has, of course, been exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic. Due to the need for remote work and social distancing, many workplace and school blood drives had to be canceled, and the recent winter surge in coronavirus cases prevented even more people from donating. One California hospital even closed the doors to its trauma center for two hours after they ran out of blood for patients. Blood transfusions are life-saving. They're used for things like blood loss brought on by an injury, surgery, or childbirth, as well as for liver problems, kidney failure, cancer, and hemophilia. If you recall, as a hemophiliac, Ryan White relied on blood transfusions containing factor VIII for his survival. But the donation he received had contained HIV, and he eventually died from AIDS. Because HIV can be transmitted through blood, potential contamination is a legitimate concern. But some activists say that the regulations on blood donations surrounding HIV target queer men. Currently, according to the American Red Cross, you cannot donate blood if you're sick, have low iron, or have recently traveled to a malaria-risk country. But if you're a man who has had sex with a man, you're also not allowed to immediately donate blood. Instead, queer men must be celibate for three months. This deferral period used to be much longer. For over 30 years, from 1983 to 2015, men who had sex with men were banned for life from donating blood. In 2015, the FDA lifted the ban to a 12-month celibacy period, 
and then to the current three-month celibacy period in 2020. The American Red Cross, which is responsible for 40% of the nation's blood supply, the American Medical Association, and a group of 22 U.S. senators have all joined queer activists in calling for an overhaul to these regulations. They argue that sexual orientation alone should not be a defining factor in screening blood donations. To be clear, the NIH reports that gay and bisexual men are most affected by HIV and often contract it after unprotected anal sex, which is the riskiest type of sex for HIV transmission. Proponents of the deferral period for queer men argue that it ensures the integrity of the nation's blood supply, even though blood donations are always tested for HIV, as well as for syphilis, hepatitis, and more. In addition, the risk of contracting HIV through a blood transfusion is about 1 in 1.5 million. In a 2021 statement, Dr. Gerald Harmon, then president of the American Medical Association, said that the three-month deferral period singles out donors based on inherent attributes rather than risk factors. He pointed out that men who have protected sex with other men cannot donate, but people who have unprotected heterosexual sex are eligible to donate freely. Dr. Harmon then went on to announce his support for an ongoing study aimed at reevaluating the deferral period. The Assessing Donor Variability and New Concepts in Eligibility, or ADVANCE study, is run by America's largest blood collection organizations, which includes the American Red Cross. According to the study's website, they're currently examining the effectiveness of reducing the risk of HIV contamination in blood using a donor questionnaire based on individual risk rather than time-based deferral for queer men. Meanwhile, the Williams Institute, a UCLA think tank, says that if queer men were allowed to freely donate blood, the supply would increase by 2 to 4 percent. This is equivalent to 345,000 to 615,000 pints of blood. And since one pint of blood can save three lives, over one million more people could receive life-saving transfusions if queer men could freely donate blood. For now, the regulations in place are a reminder of the stigma of the AIDS crisis. And even though it's been decades since the onset of the epidemic, American healthcare is still feeling its repercussions. It's now been over 40 years since those first clusters of cancer and pneumonia were reported in queer men like Gay and Dugas. Back then, activists fought tirelessly to prevent AIDS deaths. And now, in the midst of yet another crisis, they continue their fight to save lives. With KCSB News, I'm Joyce Chi.